Okay, so here we go. Old Testament backgrounds. The intro material that we just went over, all the get to know you stuff, that stuff's a separate file. Okay, I separated them out so you can, if you're looking online for it, it'll be two separate files for today. The intro stuff, and then this will be um, OT background one. All right, and that's how I'll try to label them each week, you know, week one, two, three, etc. So this morning, what I want to get into is uh, the need for a course like this. Um, that might be a blank already on your page. It is. Okay, so the need for a course like this, or why do you need to study backgrounds of anything? And the first reason is due to the lack of shared pool of knowledge. So shared pool of knowledge. And I'm talking about the lack of shared pool of knowledge. Now, some of this material um, I create, and some of this material, just like every other professor, um, we get it from other people, right? Uh, other professors, other classes, things we've taken, read, researched, etc. Shared pool of knowledge uh, is a term or a phrase that uh, I kind of made up. I don't know if anyone else uses it or not. But here's what it deals with and refers to. It refers to the fact that um, you and I, okay, do not think the same way as Moses, for instance. And there's a massive cultural gap between how he thought and how you think. There's also a gap between how the Apostle Peter and Paul thought and how you thought. And so shared pool of knowledge would be the shared area. So you have how people thought in Bible times and how people thought in modern times. And the only part that we share is, is that middle part, you know, on the Venn diagram where they overlap. Now, why does it even matter? Because if you don't think the way someone else is thinking, then you can't understand what they're saying. And if you think about what I just said, you know this to be true because it happens all the time in your life. In a marriage, when my wife and I are talking to each other, but we are totally on two different pages, yeah, we're not talking to each other. Right? Yeah. Words are coming out of our mouth, but we are not communicating. Um, this is what I'm talking about. We just adopted a, a, you know, our nine-year-old boy. When I'm trying to get him to understand something, for um, better yet, when he is in a funk, when, when he's in his mood and he's having a meltdown, okay, he is not on the same page with me at all. And so it's and really at that point, the majority of the time, or at least half the time, it really doesn't matter what I'm saying, because until he gets to a point where he's processing, it, it doesn't matter. It's just shooting over his head. So this is a hugely important concept. I have, I have two or three, maybe a handful of concepts that I think drive almost everything related to the scriptures. This is one of them. The shared pool of knowledge, or what we're talking about, the lack of the shared pool of knowledge. So because you don't share the same way that Moses was thinking, when he writes something, guess what you do? Exactly. Exactly. And so this happens with all of us, by the way, and it happens in every denomination. Okay? Nobody is free from this. We have to work I'll get to them. They'll be covered mo mostly today if we get through today's material, um, which we might not get, get through. So are you all with me so far on what this is? Mm -hmm. So why 
why do you need a course like backgrounds? Why do you even have to study backgrounds? Some people say, you don't need all that stuff, Kevin. All you need is the Bible. I, I just, I'm going to respectfully disagree. I mean, if the only thing you have is the Bible, yes, that's enough to get you saved, right? It's the Word of God, right? The Word of God, which is written by the Spirit of God, combined with the continuous active work today of the Spirit of God. And then once you get saved, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. So the Spirit of God that wrote the Scriptures and the Spirit of God that now lives in you, yes, okay? You'll live, okay? You can, you can follow Jesus. But can you understand all the stuff in the Old Testament? Can you understand all the intricacies and all this type of stuff? I'm sorry. You don't think the same way as, as Moses does. And God doesn't just zap us. For instance, when he, when he chose to use Moses, Moses has a background. Moses was raised with an understanding of Egyptian culture. Moses spent time in the, in the wilderness as a, as a shepherd. Okay? These things all come through in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul, Timothy. These things come through in their illustrations and how they talk. If you are a, uh, an auto mechanic, then what kind of illustrations are you probably going to use most of your time to explain things in life? Car illustrations. And if you're talking to someone who knows nothing about cars, what's going to happen? That's right. And that's exactly what happens. So you've all read stuff in the Bible and you're like, I don't have a clue what's going on here. Well, that's why. Because we lack the spiritual knowledge. So one of the things that we have to do, and one of the, the, the points of the class like this, is to help us reduce that lack so that we can have more of this overlap. And the more overlap you have, the better you're going to what? Understand life. Right? It's the same thing with our walk with God. Our, our walk with God is aimed at us <coughs> having the mind of who? Exactly. The mind of Christ, right? And does that happen instantaneously the day you get saved? No, he continues to work in us progressively, like the progressive sanctification. He continues to make us more and more like Christ, Philippians uh, 1.6, right? That the work he began in us, he's going to continue to do it until we're made like Christ, right? Paul talks in Corinthians that one day we'll see him as he truly is. So this work that we're talking about, we're talking about the same thing here, just on a totally different level, all right? Um, John Wallen says in his book, Ancient Near uh, East Thought and... Uh, the Old Testament, in this book here, he says, he says, effective communication requires a body of agreed-upon words, terms, and ideas. He's basically saying the same thing that I'm saying. He's just not saying spiritual knowledge. That is what he is referring to. So there are issues that go way beyond language to culture. In fact, uh, language is culture-bound and culturally determined. Okay, You can just think about what words are swear words. In different cultures, they're different words. Why? Because of the culture. Okay? So that's a whole other issue. I mean, you could actually think through that. You know, we have our ideas in American Christianity. This is a, this is a bad word. Don't say it. Um, does God think these words are bad or not? You know, you can get into a big discussion about this and, and, and lay out the intricacies of that. Daylight savings time can be figured out from the study um, of terms. It cannot be figured out. That's a typo. It cannot be figured out. The cultural context and interpretation must be brought to bear on the topic. What I mean by that, um, if your lettering is the same, I'm on 2A1B. Um, daylight savings times cannot be figured out from a simple study of the terms. Why? Because if you look at daylight and savings and time, like without a cultural understanding of, of what that means and why 
it doesn't make any sense. Are you all with me on this? The words themselves don't always get you where you need to go. This is why you have idioms. This is why you have figurative speech. And all of this plays a role in our interpretation. All right. The next thing is so that you would see the big picture. That's a blank. That you would see the big picture. Understand the biblical narrative of how God involves himself with people at particular times and places. All through the, the story of God is what the Bible is. Um, history is his story. And the Old Testament is, is part of that story. And God does a specific work in a specific place with specific people. You find that out as we study the backgrounds and the culture. Next is see the detail. See the detail and engage your senses. Picture it. Watch it unfold. I've constantly told my students that, um, that the way to read the Bible is to think of it as a movie. Movies are what our culture is about. If, if we were 2,000 years ago or if we were in uh, the Middle East still in certain areas today, it would be about being around a campfire with grandpa. But that's not what it is in our culture. Our culture for stories, we go see them on the big screen for the most part. The Bible is a story. And so often, you know, people start reading through the Bible and they get, they get lost in Leviticus or Numbers, um, and then they quit. Yes, those are hard passages to get through, but it's a story, and that's what we got to remember uh, as, as we're reading through it. So it helps you see the details, and then it's, you see the historicity of your faith, the historicity. Um, as C.H. Dodd has said, some religions can be indifferent to historical fact and move entirely upon the plane of timeless truth. Christianity cannot. So what he's saying is that history matters, that history matters to our faith. That Christianity is not just some mythical thing, but it's rooted in history. And as Christians, we know that it's rooted specifically in the history of Jesus Christ. A real event that really took place where he was really crucified and really rose again about three days later. If that didn't happen, as the Apostle Paul says, then we're the biggest fool of the day. Like, just pack up and go home. What are we doing? Unless he really did rise from the dead. And then it's a game changer. And that's why we're here, right? Because he really did rise from the dead. Because there is a historical reality to this. <clears throat> we're going to deal primarily with three topics in this course. Archaeology, the Bible, and a cultural context. And that was probably three different um, blanks for you. Archaeology, the Bible, and the cultural context of the Bible, which is going to include climate, geography, language, customs, and people, etc. Um, John Walton, in his book, and I have a picture of, of the book on the screen, Ancient Near East Thought and the Old Testament, he says, ultimately the goal of background studies is to examine the literature and archaeology of the ancient Near East in order to reconstruct the behavior, beliefs, culture, values, and worldviews people. In other words, you're an investigator. You're, you're a biblical investigator, and you're, and you're trying to find out what was it like for these people in their culture and their time. Can you get inside their heads? Can, can you understand what's going on, how they lived, etc.? Um, I think you all know that it's completely different than how most of us live. Um, our pardon? Middle Eastern? Exactly. Uh, for starters, right? Um, <laughs> 
21st century has problems of its own. All of the advances that we have in technology, there are great things about technology. But there's also horrible things about it. Um, you know, if you work with kids and teens, it, it is so hard to get them off their phones. You can put them in the same room, and they're not going to talk to each other. Nope. They're going to play that video game. Yeah. 
brother Andrew, who started Open Doors uh, USA.org organization. Um, he was called the Bible Smuggler. Um, these guys will do exactly what you're talking about. Um, 30 years ago, brother Andrew said, if we don't bring the gospel to Islam, they will come knocking on our door. 30 years ago. So, in those 30 years, what has he done? He's built relationships with people. Now, this is crazy. If you've never heard this, I, I still don't know how it all fits together or, or how to reconcile it, except that he's in a room with someone and he's going to share Jesus with them. Um, these people, and he's not the only one, um, Bob Roberts at Northwood Church in Kelly, Texas, uh, same thing. These people literally have keys in tents with heads of organizations like I do.
other things that are part of that culture, and that information is then used to help understand how they live. This is how some of our best information regarding um, pets, and, and I mean by that like tablets, play tablets, uh, that have, they might have to-do lists, those aren't new, um, they used to write them on clay tablets, or it might be a, um, a medicine prescription, or it could be a shopping list. They found all of that type of stuff, thousands of them, in different tells around the, the world. So archaeology gives us information about it. This is how when they find um, words that before we never heard of them, like in the Hebrew or Greek, there's a lot of words in the Hebrew especially that occur one time in the Bible. Well, how do you find out what a word means if it only occurs one time and you're not sure what the roots are, where it came from? And so <coughs> if they're blessed enough or to find something with that word in it, it helps them understand the word, which then helps interpret the scripture where that word came from. So, archaeology is a big deal. Um, yes? Why do you call it Skelly? It means mound or hill. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's all. So, there's different layers, which these are called strata, the different layers, okay? So, Victor Matthews, in his book, the Old Testament text and context. In his book, he lists several different um, advantages to archaeology. He also is going to uh, list some limitations. So the advantages, are, are these fill in the blanks for you or are they underlined? Okay, so it helps reconstruct the biblical world. Helps us put the pieces back together so we can reconstruct uh, what we know about the biblical world, which remember, the shared pool of knowledge. Okay, so that's helping us increase our shared pool of knowledge so we can better understand things. Um, letter B, it helps visualize objects mentioned in the biblical narrative. Letter C, it helps to illuminate difficult sections of the Bible. Letter D, it makes biblical people come alive, which therefore creates interest. Letter E, and lastly, that our epic supplements ancient written sources. Supplements ancient written sources. So these are some of the awesome things about archaeology. These are some of the, the benefits. It reconstructs, it visualizes, illuminates, makes come alive, creates interest, and supplements. Okay, now, there's also some things we've got to watch out for with archaeology. Okay, archaeology is, is not the end all. Okay, it's not the magic pill. And so he lists some of the following limitations. First one is that evidence is fragmentary. Okay, it's fragmentary. It means it's partial. So when I say you, you find a shopping list, yeah, you might find half of the shopping list. When I say that you find a text with a word in it, yeah, again, you might find half of it. Think about if you know anything about the the scrolls of the Bible that are found, whether it's the Dead Sea, Qumran Caves, whatever. Most of the time, they're finding pieces of scrolls. I don't know if you know this or not, but the, the people that stockpile these, literally, there are basements that have hundreds of thousands of scraps of these, of these scrolls that have been found. They don't have the manpower or the time to catalog them and go through them. Like, we have no idea what they found. They just sit there. Um, so, there is so much stuff that is found, but it's fragmentary, okay? 
Letter B, the evidence requires interpretation. They say, okay, well that's nice, yeah, we hung up pottery and it says, you know, this on it. Okay, but what does that mean? How, how do we interpret that? What does it have to do, in our case, we're looking at the Bible, but archaeology is not only about the Bible. It's an entire field all, all by itself. There's, uh, there's other people that are into archaeology, people who study ancient uh, cultures, you know, Assyria, Babylon, all of these. So it's not just for Christians, but it requires interpretation. Letter C, evidence is of a physical nature and thus cannot prove or disprove theological propositions like there's a God. So it's physical evidence. And lastly, literary evidence often takes priority. And what do I mean by that? Or what does Matthew Lee mean by that? He means that, <coughs> so we find something, but it's got to be interpreted. And then as a Christian, we already have some presuppositions. If you don't think you do, you do. Okay. As a Christian, one of our presuppositions is there's a God. So the evidence that we find, this, this is where everybody has a bias, right? So if you're a Christian, that evidence, you're to some degree fitting it into your worldview that you already have established about Christianity. Now, sometimes it tweaks our worldview, right? But I don't know about you, but I'm already committed to the fact that the scriptures are true, don't contradict each other, and don't lie. Now, I may misunderstand, so maybe something will help me you know, figure that out, but I'm already committed to that. And so this evidence then gets fit into that grid. And that's what he means when he says the literary evidence of the Bible often takes priority. <clears throat> Next I want to look at just a couple of things related to the Bible. I would go more in, in detail with this. And what? Yes, ma'am. Literary. You're welcome. I'll go more detail into the, the Bible stuff as far as the structure and the canon in my Old Testament class. But I think it's important that we have a little bit of an understanding of the foundation for some things related to the scriptures. So the Bible. It's a canon of 39 English and 24 Hebrew books arranged differently but containing the same content. Okay? So in the biblical Hebrew Okay, Jewish way of thinking. All right, have you ever heard the word Tanakh? All right, it comes from these three letters: the T, the N, and the K, which are Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, which stand for the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Which this together is the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Okay, they didn't call it that. That's just the Bible they had, um, which is the Bible Jesus had, by the way. So it's organized slightly different and how our English Bibles are organized. We have 39 books in the Old Testament. They do not. But they have the exact same books. They're just differently. So let me give you the easiest example. In our Bibles, we have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, right? Okay, well, they don't divide them. They're good. It's just Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So already that gives us three more. You with me on that? Okay, so... Um, Ezra and Nehemiah combined. So again, there's another one. So you're like, well, what do you mean? 39 and 24 is not the same, Kevin. You're right, it's not, but it is. <laughs> so it's not the same, all right? It's a different number, but it's just how they have them together. Also consider, they didn't have books like this. 
roles, right? Especially at first. Um, and so that also plays a part in how they're keeping these um, together. <coughs> this slide I find to be pretty helpful. <coughs> this takes the, the same three categories. Okay? Anybody that teaches Old Testament has a choice as to how they're going to teach it. When I do a book through survey, I've taught it both ways. You can follow the Hebrew structure, okay, which is um, the, the law, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, um, the three structure. Or what often happens is you follow our English Bible order, and this is just a choice you have to make. In the textbook that is used at BCF, OT Survey, Paul House follows the Hebrew Bible order. But when most of us teach it, we follow the English Bible order, which means we don't always read a section, especially in the second half, which is OT 2, which is what I'm teaching after this class today. Uh, so you don't read it straight through the way he has it set up if you're teaching that. So that's a little bit why, if you're in my class there, we'll read, talk through this. But this chart is is very cool because it helps you break down these aspects and also is a little bit uh, helpful on learning it with the mnemonic nuance that he has listed here. So you've got the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, or the law, the writings, and the prophets. Then he, he changes this <coughs> for English, for us, history, poetry, and prophecy, 17 books, 5 books, and 17. All right? That makes it nice symmetry and easy to remember. All right, 17, 5, and 17. Then he further breaks them down. You've got the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, right, the Torah. The Historical, which is 12, so it's 5 and 12. Then five more poetry books, five prophets, and, and five minor prophets, or 12 minor prophets. So again, even in the English, there is some, some good symmetry to help you. If, you. if you haven't seen this before or it's hard for you to, to grasp this, then this chart is probably um, a good way for you to do it. Then over here he has them listed also by um, exile, pre-post-exile related to the prophets, uh, etc. Does that make a little bit of sense? Yeah? All right. Another way that you can um, approach this and look at the idea. Yes? This chart I think is already online. It, uh, the guy's name is uh, Schreider or Schreider or something like that. I think it's S-C-H. Um, I got that from somebody else. But I believe there's a one page already on the, the website for you. Let me just show you one more. <coughs> this image here is helpful for your understanding of the timeline. Um, and I have a couple of these in, in this presentation that help you understand this. One of the things that you've got to grasp uh, to understand the Bible is the story of it. So you have the history books, all right? And then you have the poets and the prophets, which is what we're going to cover in OT2, all right? The poets and the prophets. The history book is the storyline. So if you want to know like what's God's story, like what's the main thing, 
then you read the history books. And once you finish reading those history books, you, you need to realize that the other books, the poets and the prophets, they fit inside of that. And that's what this is trying to show you right here. Is that this arrow, he's saying that, that these books here, the, the poetical books, are taking place in this time period here. And then with, with the prophets, he's showing you that before, during, and after the exile, so the exile is, is here, during the exile, these were written. These over here, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, after, these before, all right? And then he's got the law as, as the base and the bottom. Um, I, have, I have one more that I'll show you here. It's just divided differently. Okay, why do you show me so many different ones? You all think differently. I love to create stuff like this. I just don't have the time. So when I find someone that created it, I use it, right? So whichever one works best for helping you understand it is the one you should gravitate towards. This one is uh, in color. And again, history, poetry, and prophecy. And he's got them laid out. And there's actually multi multiple layers here. You, you've got your dates running through the middle. And then you've got the books of the Bible. <coughs> based on when they occurred, and then they're color-coded for the genre. Why does genre matter? Genre's huge. Because you don't read the comic page the same way you read the obituary page. Right? That's why genre, genre matters. You don't read the poets the same way you read a narrative. So, when you look at these books, these poetic books, you need to understand, they took place in here. So to understand them, you've got to know what's going on in Samuel and Kings. When you read the prophets, okay, the prophets are speaking to the people in a certain time period. Well, what time period? Well, it depends on which prophet. So these are during this divided kingdom, and some of them at the end of the United. Here during exile, here after the exile. What they're saying to the people is going to be different. After the exile, the prophets are offering hope. They're saying, yeah, okay, you got spanked. You, you, you got disciplined. You got corrected. You got sent away. You need to refuse to repent. But guess what? God's not done with you, right? He, he chops you down, but a new seed's coming. There's a new life coming. And so you go back, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they're rebuilding, right? And during that rebuilding time, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, are writing about what God's going to do. And we leave off with Malachi at the end. I'm shutting down the temple. He smelt. He stinks. He makes me sick. Because you still don't care. You still love yourself more than you love me. But there's a Savior coming. And that's how we end the Old Testament, right? And the, the Hebrew arrangement that ends with Chronicles. We end with Malachi. We move into the Chronicles. Chronicles is like a retelling. Of the whole history, right? That's why, like, the first nine chapters, like, oh, my goodness, these prophecies, right? All right, well, just kidding. All right, come back to them on another day. All right, that's how I did it, by the way, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, when, when you're a young Christian and, and you're reading stuff or you're, you, you don't grasp all these things, the genealogies, I used to skip them all the time. Um, I still skip them sometimes, right? So the genealogies are a whole other topic, but there's actually great learning in genealogies. But they're hinges. Genealogies connect one story to the next story, all right? And they also demonstrate uh, the lineage of 
important people in Scripture that Jesus comes to. So we get the prophets, though. We got all these genealogies in the beginning. And then prophets go through and basically shows how God is working through Judah. And then this is in the Bible. So both the Hebrew order and the English order end up with this idea that God's still doing something. And it comes through the Messiah. That's how this thing works out. Let's pray. Does that make sense? The next thing I want to touch on is one of my other big things. So I, I said, Robert, there's uh, you know three or four or five. Okay, this is one of my other ones. Okay, this is this is a key one. I don't know if it's my most important, but it might be. I would like one day to write a book on it. I know it's just four letters. Look at me, right? SPSU. Let me, um, before I jump into SPSU, I, um, I skipped uh, letter D, so let me give you the fill in the blanks there. And number two, cohesion. Yep. Co cohesion is actually SPSU. <coughs> so, I guess I didn't skip it, it's just, just cohesion. Um, so, let me talk about SPSU then. So, SPSU. So, you want to SPSU professional union? Yes. SPSU. But I thought I had uh, it laid out for you elsewhere also. I don't see it on the notes here, so I'm just going to put this down. Because it stands for something. It stands for selectivity, implies purpose, assumes structure, demands unity. So it's selectivity, purpose, structure, and unity. Selectivity. Implies purpose, assumes structure, demands unity. Selectivity, purpose, structure, unity. Right? Let, let me explain what I mean by that. Yep, selectivity implies purpose, assumes structure, demands unity. And the easiest illustration or, or simplest that I, I regularly use is simply this. Okay? What is this? Somebody set out to make this chair, okay, it's a bed and game plan. They, they wanted to make a chair. Um, they weren't going to make a stool or a table. They were going to make a chair. So just picture a factory that makes chairs, stools, tables, everything, right? So the guy that's going to make the chair, what does he do? He goes and he picks from the bin the parts needed for this chair, right? So we need legs and a seat and a back, et cetera, right? So he picks that selectivity, all right? Implies purpose. Why? Because the purpose is where structure comes into play, okay? So you don't have to make this with the same pieces. You could take this apart and, I don't know, if you have a good creative imagination, you could make something else from the same part. And the last part is unity. You put them together and it's a coherent whole, okay? You take one of the legs off and do you have a chair? No, you have a stool, right? So you change a part and now you've changed the thing. So that's where this cohesion or I'm going to talk more about it in my OT survey class, but the thing with SPSU is it drives everything. 
it's a perfect simple principle for me. Um, when you get to a test and you're like, why in the world is that in there? Well, we're going to go back to presuppositions. I believe the Bible is inspired by God. It's not accidental. So if there's something in the text, it's SPSU. It's in there for a reason. The inspired authors of Scripture had a choice in what words to use, right? They chose them. That's selectivity. They had, they had hundreds or thousands of words to choose from. They chose certain words. So it's not accidental. Selectivity, purpose, structure, and unity. They're put in there, the, the, the words, the sentence, the paragraphs, the way it's structured, for a reason. So it works with the text that's literary, okay? But it works with everything else also. It's not just a literary thing. If you're a, a movie buff, think about movies. It's not accidents in what takes place in the movie. Right? That's why foreshadowing exists, right? The only reason there's foreshadowing is because of SPSU. So if you ever read, um, not read, I'm sorry, if you ever watch uh, director's commentaries, okay? Um, no, I haven't watched that in a minute. But there's a couple of movies that I was so intrigued by that I, I watched the whole thing again with a director's commentary. Um, there's a reason they do the stuff that they do. And so that's the SPSU principle. So does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. All right, so SPSU. And I, I got that idea through, I, I don't know, a long time period. The first exposure was probably um, Sal Hammer's book, The Narrative of as Tendency, which I've talked about that in my other class, but I just keep that in my notes. All right, letter D, the Septuagint, okay? Letter D, Septuagint, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T, Septuagint. The Septuagint is the first Greek uh, translation around 250 B.C. It was used readily. It appears in the first century, including um, by the, the New Testament writers. Looks like there's something missing there, maybe in your notes, or at least on mine, with my, uh, my pictures. Looks like they blotted something out. But it was used readily in the first century. Um, most scholars would argue that the Apostle Paul quoted from it on a regular basis in the New Testament writings. How do they know that? Well, they're simply looking at the New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament in Greek, which is the Septuagint, and the Old Testament in Hebrew. They say, well, the Greek matches this Greek. Sometimes exactly. And you're like, well, if it's close, like you took it from this. Um, whereas if you took it from the Hebrew, it would have been slightly different. Two different translation clauses. <coughs> With the cultural context, um, languages, number one. Languages are ever-changing. By the time of Jesus, the following were in use in Palestine. There was, there was Hebrew, that was the religious. There's Aramaic, that was the lingua franca, or, or the, the common verbiage. Latin, Roman legal, and the Greek, due to Alexander's Hellenization program. So all these languages were in use. Jesus was at least trilingual. Okay? He spoke at least Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, maybe more. Um, that, that would have been semi-common. And so languages changed. <coughs> Number two, geography. Geography. G. Ernest Wright has said, and this is actually straight out of our our book, that geography, history, and religion are so inextricably bound together in the Bible that the religious message cannot be truly understood without attention to the setting and conditions of the revelation. In other words, when God spoke, he spoke in a time and a place. He spoke to a certain group of people at a certain time in a certain language. He did not speak... Moses in the language of angels. How do I know that? Because Moses understood him. So he spoke in the language of love. 
Moses, yeah, Moses, right? Whatever Moses spoke at the time, that's what he was speaking in, right? So, right? So, all through Scripture, it's the same thing. So, what does this mean? This means that we can't be so tied to our language, all right? So, people get all upset about different, you know, you have translations and languages and all this type of stuff. God's been using different languages forever, right? And so he still is. When God speaks to the people, he speaks in, in their time. He doesn't come to Moses through an iPad. There was none, right? So he speaks to Moses in the time and in the culture of the period. If you change time periods, then you should expect to see what? Exactly. It's going to show up differently. Letter A, Mesopotamia. <clears throat> what do we know about Mesopotamia? Okay, this is where we start getting into some of the, the geography aspects, okay? And this is just going to be uh, briefly, because the next part, which we won't get to, obviously, today, is going to be the geography of the Old Testament. But Mesopotamia has periodic devastating floods from primarily the Euphrates River, sometimes wiping out entire cities. Um, it's an arid, dry area. Um, related areas include Sumer, Babylon, Assyria, etc. The Syria-Palestine area is a smaller area, but it's central to the biblical narrative. Tremendous geographic and climactic diversity. Okay, so <clears throat> we're dealing with um, the Mesopotamian area, which, as you can see here, is in between the two rivers, Euphrates and Tigris River. Right? Then we're dealing with Syria-Palestine, okay, so that's this area over here. Okay, and then um, the third primary area is Egypt. Dry, small annual um, rain relying on the predictable flooding of the Nile, which the Egyptians often felt superior and became quite xenophobic. So that's here. So we've got area one, area two, and area three. The, um, don't like foreigners. Thought they were superior. So, this area over, over here, the Mesopotamian area, is, is, is bounded, the boundaries are, okay, uh, Euphrates and Tigris, we'll talk more about that later. In Egypt over here, you've got the Nile River. <coughs> you have some other bodies of water that we'll get to uh, next time in the Palestinian area. Number three, the climate. The climate is tied to geography. I think that makes sense. So it varies from predictable fertility around the Nile River to unpredictable um, around the Euphrates and, and the Tigris. When the Euphrates and Tigris um, would spill over, they, they wipe out whole towns and cities sometimes. So you got to think about that when you're looking at the geography and culture over here versus over here in Egypt with the Nile. <coughs> I want to go through some things about comparative studies. I'm going to do this uh, fairly quickly. Uh, you have them in your notes. And you can look back through them. And the point here is not that you have to um, know all of these um, by heart or something. The point is to just expose you uh, to it. This is simply another uh, couple of pictures of, of the area that we're referring to. Um, there's a lot of great maps, but then there's some maps that it just pops out you know, at you. Um, a little bit better. So this is the same area. So Euphrates and Tigris River, Mesopotamia is in between. 
Um, you can see how small we're talking about here. Um, the Palestinian area, Israel, our, our main focus area will be. And then Egypt over here. So, again, coming from uh, John Walton's book, The Ancient Near East Thought in the Old Testament, he has some guidelines um, for comparative studies. And you can also look in your textbook on page 14 and 15 and see um, William Albright's uh, comments as well. They're not the same, um, but there is some overlap and similarity. When we talk about Comparative studies. What we're talking about is when you look at the creation story, and then you look at the Enuma Elish, which we'll talk about probably in our next class time. You don't know what I'm talking about? That's another creation story. It's just not a Bible one. Or the flood stories, Genesis 6 with Noah and Gilgam and Tepe. Again, another flood story. Okay, there's flood stories in almost every single culture. They're not all the same. So we're comparing. So comparative studies is looking at um, how does Enuma Elish and the creation story in Genesis compare? And you're going to have differences and similarities. I don't know if this is a point on there or not. I, I don't think I wrote it this way, but just mark this down. The difference makes all the difference. Okay? I know. It's, it's a simple thing, right? But it's key. The difference makes all the difference. Otherwise, they'd be the same, right? So when we look at things like the Enuma Elish and the creation story, um, there's a difference for a reason. We're back to SKSU, right? So let me go through these quickly. And what, what time do we end? 40. 40 or 50? 40. 40. That's five minutes. All right. So let me go through these comparative studies. Um, a, both similarities and differences need to be considered. So both the similarities and the differences need to be considered. Letter B, similarities may suggest a common cultural heritage or cognitive environment rather than borrowing. So what he's saying is that they might have lived similarly and that's why they share some of the same things. C, it is not uncommon to find similarities at the surface, but differences at the conceptual level and vice versa. In other words, it looked the same, but how they thought about it was different. So you could have two different cultures that it looks on the surface like they celebrate, let's just say Christmas, similarly, but the reason they celebrate it is completely different. All right? So if, if you're from another planet and you come and, and you're seeing... Maybe you know, these Christmas are celebrating Christmas over here, and somebody else is celebrating on the same day. You should think they're celebrating the same thing, but they could be completely different things. Um, so on the surface, it looks like one thing, but in reality, it's another thing. Letter D, all elements must be understood in their own context as accurately as possible before cross-cultural comparisons are made. So he's saying, before you compare this to what's going on over here, try to understand as much as possible right here. All right? If we don't, if we don't understand what's going on here, then we need to be careful about jumping to what's going on here and bringing that in. Now, this may help us understand this, but we really need to first prioritize and try to understand what's going on here. 
E. Proximity and time, geography, and sphere of cultural contact all increase the possibility of interaction leading to influence. Okay, so if you have people that are living together, what's gonna or living near each other, what's gonna happen? Yes, they're gonna rub off on each other, right? So this cultural practice here is, is gonna seep in and mix over here, and this one's gonna do the same thing over here. So you're gonna end up with this overlap, right? F. A case for literary borrowing requires identification of likely channels of transmission. Transmission. So what he's saying is this. Some people will say the creation story is borrowed. Okay? They copied it. Look at it, it's everywhere. Enuma at least. Nature hates this epic. It's, it's all over the place. Okay, they just copied the parts they wanted. They, ch they changed it up, okay? He's saying, before you can say that, you better be able to show where it came from in the past, you know? Paper trail, you're familiar with that term, right? Where's the paper trail? Show me how it got from A to B, and it ended up here as this new story. That's what he's saying. If you can't show me that, then, then don't say, especially dogmatically, that they borrowed it. That would be the same investigation, yes. Yep. But where's the paper trail? Is there one? If there's not, if there's all these gaps, then you got to be cautious. You know, you could speculate, you could theorize or hypothesize, but to say they borrowed it? How, yeah. how do you know who was first? <laughs> That's a great question. <coughs> I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> you could write a paper on it, though. I think I think some of that sometimes some of that comes with um, with what presuppositions you hold to though also you know when you, when you look at things like uh, whether you believe in in God creating or some evolutionary process okay that wherever you land on that suddenly you've got some presuppositions that are going to influence other decisions so um, next one the significance of difference between two pieces of literature is minimized if the works are not the same genre. What he's saying here is if, if one is poetry and one is, just for the sake of illustration, a comic, okay, they need to be really careful about making these assumptions. Okay, Genre was your word, G-E-N-R-E, genre. Genre just means the type of literature, right? Comic, story, etc. Um, H, similar functions may be performed by different genres in different cultures. Same word again, genres. So in other words, you you could have um, you could have comics. I don't know why I keep using that, but it's easy. Genre, yes, G E N R E. You could you could have uh, comics in two different cultures, but they serve a different purpose. Maybe in one culture they are um, used for for ridicule or something. Maybe another culture they're used for just levity to you know enjoyment, take a take a load off. You know, that's what he's saying. When literary or cultural elements are borrowed, they may in turn be transformed into something quite different by those who borrowed them. That's letter I, different. So you could pick up something and use it for a different purpose. Okay? Um, you, could, you could take this chair, which in this culture is a chair for sitting on. You're all doing it right now, right? And you could take this to another culture, and they have no need to sit down. So they use it for chair then, it's a ladder, um, step stool. <coughs> J, a single culture will rarely be monolithic, 
either in contemporary cross-section or in consideration of the passage of time. What is he talking about with, with monolithic? Um, he's basically saying it's multifaceted. Okay? Th there's more to it than meets the eye. It's not just like one thing. It's not, it's not mono one, all right? All right. Goals of background studies. This is also from Wallen. All this is from Wallen, from the book on the screen. All right. Students may study the history... That's your blank. The history of the ancient Near East as a means of recovering knowledge of the events that shaped the lives of people in the ancient world. So what he's doing here is just four points. Each is a different area of study. The first is history. Okay, What can you study history for? The second one is archaeology. You may study archaeology, which is A-R-C-H. It's A-E-O. That's the part that I always struggle with. It's A-E-O, archaeology as a means of recovering the lifestyle reflected in the material culture of the ancient world. So you're looking for culture and lifestyle. C, you can study the literature, the literature of the ancient Near East as a means of penetrating the heart and the soul of the people who inhabited the ancient world that Israel shared. Literature. And last one is language. So it gives you insights into semantics, idioms, metaphors, the Hebrew language, et cetera, et cetera. All right, which also ties in you know, with literature, but... <coughs> The last thing you can just look at it is um, on, that's page five for me, but uh, it's better uh, six, the comparative contextual spectrum. Uh, and here, the point is simply, when you're looking at differences and, and similarities, and, and you look through the spectrum that is there, going from the bottom, you could have subconsciously shared heritage. So you don't think about it. You, you, you just share it subconsciously. It's how you live, and you just, you just do it. All the way to the top, where you totally ignore and present different views. And that whole spectrum in between. And we can talk more about that later, and, and that will probably come up in some of the conversations that we'll have as, as we look at cultural aspects. But what Walton is, is really saying here is that there's a spectrum. It's not just a, a total black and white of this or this. But where are people in this culture coming from, and how are these things related? Does that make sense? as far as we're going to get for today. So next class period, we will jump into the geography. Is that page six on your notes, or is it different? Page six. It's page six still. Okay. So what we'll do um, next week is we will jump into the geography of the Old Testament. We'll cover all of that um, fairly quickly, and then we'll start looking at the creation stories in the ancient Near East. And you can already see your notes page is, is basically blank with a few things. We'll look at the Enuma Elish, Atrahasis Epic, Genesis account. And so we will begin immediately diving into what we've been talking about uh, with John Walton's book with the ancient Near East thought in the Old Testament about comparative studies. Uh, and that's how Genesis starts. It starts right out with a creation story. What do you make of that? Especially um, when you begin to realize that there's lots of creation stories. Sometimes ignorance is, is bliss, right? When, when you first read the Bible and you don't know anything about any other cultures, and you're like, oh, it's another creation story. And it's like, oh, well, this is just how it is, right? But then you start learning that, no, there's thousands of creation stories. So how did we really get here? Like, what's true? What's not true? And everybody has to, in their life, 
into a fight for where they make a decision about those things. And obviously for, for me and uh, for all you guys, we decided that the Bible is the truth. And so now we're wrestling and grappling with how does that relate to all these other cultures and what they say. There's, why do we have similarities and big differences? So, any last minute questions? tonight, maybe after dinner or something, this will uh, be up. Next week, you're going to be up until Friday, Friday and Sunday? Yeah, well, I'll extend uh, this week's quiz for the whole next week. So mm -hmm. I'll change it till not this Sunday night, but the next Sunday night. So you'll have two quizzes due next Sunday night. This week till next week. And they're, again, they're just going to be on the textbook. They're not on the lecture, okay? And there'll be five to ten questions. And they'll be on what is the um, kind of the main points, if you will. Right? What kind of questions? Um, one question. Essay. Not essay. No. Multiple choice types of questions. Multiple choice types of questions. So, you know, uh, you got the intro here, and then we're through and over how the intro type stuff. And then you got the primeval uh, period. So, you got Mesopotamia. So the whole like first four, five, six pages is all just Mesopotamian stuff, right? And then it goes into the land of Israel. So the three sections basically that we just briefly touched on, it's basically what your textbook is going to talk about. It's also what we're going to spend the first part of next Thursday on as well. And then again, you don't actually have to take the quiz until the next week. So you can wait until after next class period if you want, when we will have gone through some of the um, geography in a little bit more detail than what we did. You have a map that's in there. If you look on page 9, <coughs> so that work map on the top of page 9, uh, we'll go over every one of those numbers and letters. The numbers are bodies of water and the letters are places. So we'll go over all of those so you have an understanding of, of where they are and then, of course, we'll want you to learn more. All righty? Yes, sir. All right, so we'll see you next week.